0: You guys can be seated. The sermon today is uh, coming from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. If you guys have your Bibles, please turn to that now. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the reading will be on the, the board behind us. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. Amen. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God.
1: And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither a storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
2: good morning restoration church all right little kids little guys little gals off you go um let me uh, as they're going out let me remind you you heard the announcement let me just say it again um the men's retreat october 6th and 7th men you want to be there i promise it's a great time of fellowship if you want to deepen relationships not just learn about it but actually do it it's a it's probably one of the best opportunities you'll have this year So I hope you'll make that a priority and please sign up. That'll help us for planning purposes. The teaching is going to be great. Uh, So I hope you'll look forward to that and join us. Let me pray for us as we open up God's word and continue to think about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the glory of Christ, the testimony of the word that testifies to who he is, what he's done and what he will do. And so, God, we pray now that you would equip our hearts and minds to receive the truth of it that you might be glorified in the whole of our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, in his book, Radical, David Platt, uh, describes the Jesus that many in America are trying to create. He says, quote, a nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion, that does not infringe on our comforts, because after all, he loves us just the way that we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Unquote. Well, welcome to week two of our series that we're calling Do Not Conform. Uh, What we're doing throughout this series is we'll have Uh, One more next week where we'll talk about some things. What we're trying to do is we're trying to evaluate some of the more subtle ways that Christians believe lies in the world and are conforming to the world and shine the light of God's word on those things so that we might be renewed and live as living sacrifices uh, to the Lord, our great and glorious God. And so last week we talked about things more generally. Today we're talking about money. And I think it's important to note that one of the most potent ways that the evil one can begin to conform Christians to the world is by having us to believe that there is no war, that there is no danger. And so we lose sight of the fact that he, the evil one, is a great deceiver. We lose sight of the fact that his his attacks are not frontal assaults, but instead are a series of Trojan horses that slip past our minds and implant themselves into our hearts in the name of Christian liberty. And so before you know it, entire churches spring up that teach a gospel that is domesticated and strangely familiar and agreeable to all of our choices. An American Jesus, as Platt calls it. A Jesus that is in many ways kind of pitiful and manageable. Just give him an hour or two on a Sunday morning, drop a few coins in the basket as it goes by, and just live how you please the rest of the week. And slowly the evil one wins as he creates gaps between our thinking and our loving. And the thing that I want to emphasize this morning and throughout this series is that that Jesus, that Americanized Christianity is in opposition to the good life that Jesus promises his own. In other words, when Paul says, like we saw last week in Romans 12 to to not conform to the world, it's not because God is opposed to life and joy, but it's because he's for it that he says that. So the sacrificial life of Christ promises us something better, something deeper, something more rich than the lies that our flesh is prone to believe. And yet it's also true that a life for Christ is costly, but isn't everything that's truly worth it? Well, last week, as I mentioned, we introduced the idea of not conforming to the world. We said that the system of the world is trying to convince us very subtly that we should be our own God. Push God in his ways out of the center. Place me in my passions in the middle. Use God, that's fine, whenever he can serve my passions, but just keep me in the middle. And we began by saying that our hearts, our own hearts, our hearts need to be changed first by the gospel of grace. And then, then we thought about, after thinking about that, then we thought about the various ways that the world is trying to conform us. Things that are not inherently sinful, but just the mechanisms. So we thought about music and TVs and movies and uh, advertisements and our screens, access to the Internet and how they're creating a slow longing for this world uh, instead of the world to come. And we saw we thought about how we need to be renewed by the word of God so that we might again long for our heavenly home. And so this week, as I mentioned, we're going to try to be a bit more specific. Next week, we'll think about relationships. This week, we're thinking about money. and We're going to think about money in a broad sense. If you think I'm going to answer all your questions about money, then you should set your expectations much lower. Uh, That won't happen. I'm just going to try to think us more broadly about how God would have us to think about those things. Um, And so it's interesting to us, I think, at least it's interesting to me, that Jesus talked a lot about money. I mean, a lot about money. So one author says that of uh, he says that uh, the 16 of 38 parables were concerned with the handling of money that he told. He says that in the Gospels, one out of 10 verses deal directly with the subject of money. His assessment is that the Bible offers some 500 verses on prayer, but there are more than 2000 verses on money and possessions. And so there is warning after warning in the Bible about the dangers of the love of money. And yet I think we in America here, seem to uh, not listen to those warnings. They, at least they seem to be falling on deaf ears. So we got some college freshmen in the room. There was, maybe you were one of these people. You polled in the 2015 American Freshman Survey. I guess you would be juniors now. And they asked thousands of these incoming college freshmen about their goals and aspirations. And just under 82%, the highest proportion, checked, quote, becoming very well-off financial. Financially, as an essential or very important component to their lives. The self-storage business, which often serves as an overflow for people's possessions, is a $24 billion industry in America. Huge lots of TV shows have spun off of America's passions for possessions. Shows like American or Auction Hunters, Junkyard Wars, Storage Wars, Buried Treasure, and Hoarders. The average American carries some $15,300 of, a, of credit card debt. And interestingly enough, though unsurprisingly, we find that the more wealth one accumulates, studies would show us, the more wealth one accumulates, the less they believe in God. And the also seems to also be true from studies that the less money and less one possessions one has, the more they are inclined to believe in God. Which is one reason among many as to why Jesus warns us against the danger of the love of money. And it's not, guys, it's not as though these having money and possessions seems to solve the problem or seems to make full the promise that the world tells us that money will complete us and make us happier. That doesn't seem to be happening. So according to the APA, almost three quarters of Americans feel stressed about money at least some point. Uh, at least some of the time. And also America is well known for being down on the scale of happiness in comparison to other countries. And of course, we know that finances seem to be one of the most prominent reasons for divorce. And so we would be foolish and naive if we thought that we as Christians are above or outside of these pools. And so again, let's just take some time to think about this passage that was read. We're going to be looking at a few others to see how we might not conform to the world, but instead conform to the world to come with our money so first point of two this morning do not treasure what wealth can get you do not treasure what wealth can get you now looking at that parable or that uh, passage there in luke 12 notice there in verse 13 the occasion for jesus's parable this guy wants to treat jesus sort of like one of those money-grubbing lawyers you see on tv you know if like, you've been in an accident i'll get you some money you know come talk to me call this number you know those things But that Jesus says, no, he is not going to let him treat that way. See, like the good spiritual physician that he is, Jesus looks beyond the surface level and into the heart of the man. See, this man in verse 13 is focused on what might be his, his inheritance. See that there? But Jesus is focusing on something that is most definitely his death and its appointment with God. And that, says Jesus, needs to govern us more than the treasures of the earth. So the man we see lost sight of eternity and in favor of immediate circumstances. And I think that we can easily do the same. See, when it comes to money, we too can get focused on what money can do for us more than we focus on the good intentions of God for us. And in steps Jesus with a warning. Take a look at verse 15 there. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, the force in the original language there, in the Greek, the force there is very, very strong. It's hard to see it. The force is analogous to what a parent might say when they see their kid wandering into Wisconsin Avenue. Watch out! That's what it's saying. That's the force in the language there. Beware against all. Note the word all there. Not all. Not some. All covetousness. To, To covet is to desire. And so Jesus is saying, be on your guard against all of your desires. Now, covetousness can come in a variety of forms. You can covet a neighbor's wife. You can covet a position at work. You can covet a degree. Uh, and here, though, Jesus is warning against the covetousness of what money can get you. And so looking at that, ask yourself the questions. Notice he says, by the way, back up. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So what is it Jesus is concerned about? Life, right? Right. He's concerned about life. And so looking at that, just think about that. He's thinking about life. Jesus moves then from inheritance, a question about inheritance, to warning against seeing stuff as the answer to life. So Jesus then is confronting the lie that money or possessions can accumulate that which is most valuable, that which is true life, that which is joy. Money, of course, we know this. Just stop and think about it for a moment. Money in and of itself is nothing more than paper or metal, right? Nothing more than paper and metal. This man nor any of us want money for money's sake. Nor do we even want possessions for possession's sake. So we want money because we want what they will do for us. So we believe the lie that money can get us what we think we need to be complete. What we think will give us true life, true joy, true happiness. And Jesus here is confronting that lie. If we were to look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus says there that riches are deceitful. They lie. And it goes on to talk about how they choke out the life-giving, spirit-empowered word of God that offers new life. See, this man was believing a lie. He was deceived and he was choking, even though it didn't seem that way. The man in the parable was believing a lie and he was deceived and he was choking. And I think we can believe lies. That money can get us more of life. But you need to hear this. Don't lose sight of this. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Life cannot be bought. Life cannot be bought, beloved. Cannot be bought. See, money tantalizes us by convincing us that you need it in order to get life. If you have me, money says, you can get whatever you want and then you'll be happy. You can be, as Satan would say, like God. And in that way, money then is power. If you don't have me, money says, then you'll lose life and joy. But Jesus says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Money cannot buy life. And the sooner that you understand that, the sooner you'll understand what true life actually is. And so, friends, this is where the prosperity gospel preachers are so hostile to the gospel and where they distort the gospel. They tell their congregations that they need a $65 million jet to preach a gospel whose main message is the king of kings becoming poor. They feed the lies of riches by telling their people to give more money so they can get more of what they want. And by doing so, they choke their people by telling them that life is found in the abundance of possessions. And it's not. It's not. You cannot buy true life here on earth. And so take a look down at that parable. Let's think a little bit more carefully about this. Look at verse 16. First off, I want you to notice the man is already wealthy. Did you notice that? And that's important to notice because it tells us that being wealthy in and of itself does not make someone inherently sinful. Being wealthy doesn't make someone inherently sinful any more than being impoverished makes someone inherently righteous. Abraham, David, Job. Josephus, just to name a few, were wealthy people that were known by God. What matters, this is important, what matters to God is the attitude of your heart in relation to your money. What matters to God is the attitude of your heart in relation to your money, in particular what your money could get you. The way that you handle your money reveals what your heart actually treasures. That's what we're going to see. So this dude plants some seeds And it comes back, we see there, plentifully, right? So this guy kind of, in in our kind of use modern language, he kind of goes and starts his own business and boom, turns into Google, all right? He gets a lot of money. Now, we should understand that the local economy this time wasn't built on physical cash, more so than it was on buying and trading of goods. This guy started a garden so he could eat and then use the excess of that to get whatever he needed or wanted. And his crops came back way more than he needed. Now, remember, guys, money and wealth is not inherently sinful. It's what you do with your money that reveals what your heart believes is life. Wealth is a kind of test to show you what you truly value. Or as it says down there in verse 34, such an important verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What comes next reveals what the man truly treasures it reveals what he loves in his heart. And the way that he handles his money reveals what he actually treasures. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make with this parable. Abundance has been given to him in order to see what will come out of him. And what comes out of him? Well, you can hear it in his words. He's going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Now, to be clear, we have not yet seen anything wrong in and of itself, right? Tearing down And building bigger barns is not inherently evil or sinful. Buying a bigger house as a result of a pay increase is not inherently sinful. What is sinful is what comes next. Take a look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Do you hear what he values there? You can go back and even circle, like I did this past week, circle the eyes and the my's just in those couple sentences. There's a lot of them. What you do with your treasure reveals what your heart actually treasures. Not just what you say you treasure, it reveals what you actually treasure. And what do the words reveal about the man? It reveals that he treasures himself which is exactly what we thought about last week, right? What, how the world is trying to conform us. His ease, his meals, his own merriment. That's what Jesus concludes about the man. That's his conclusion. He calls him a fool in verse 20 because he can't take his wealth with him when the Lord takes his life that night. And in verse 21, he presents a contrast. Jesus presents a contrast between him who lays up treasures for themselves, for himself, and those who are rich towards God. In other words, the way the man handled his wealth revealed that at the end of the day, he treasured himself more than he treasured God. And for that reason, Jesus says that he is a damned fool. The way the man handled his abundance revealed what his heart actually treasured and thought was life. He did believe that life was found in possessions. So the man believed the lie that life would be found in his own ease and his own merriment. Here on earth. His abundance revealed that that was already in his heart. Don't miss that. So it didn't create it. The wealth didn't create it. It revealed it. Right. He was rich towards himself and not rich towards God. That's the conclusion that Jesus wants us to have. Now take care, Jesus says. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness because life is not found in the abundance of possessions where your treasure is there your heart will be also and how we spend our money reveals what we treasure now it's easy for us to kind of evaluate that parable and kind of see that there in the text i think it's harder for us to evaluate how we are like the man in the parable ourselves in our own lives a little more difficult And so let's ask the question, what are some of the lies that we are tempted to believe will give us life as it relates to what money will give us? Or how does our attitudes towards money reveal that we might treasure ourselves more than God? Well, here are a list of lies that I think that we are tempted to believe. We can believe that money will get us esteem or favor with others. We're tempted to believe that money can get us to feel better about ourselves and our own self-worth because, you know, you've arrived since you have so much money and other people don't. We, we can believe that more money equals more favor from God. There are books that even said things like that. We believe that more money, we can believe that more money will make it possible for us to control our lives. Now, most of the time we would never say that, but that's actually what's functioning, right? I know that has for me. I've done a lot of repenting this week. If we have more money, we have more options, we tell ourselves. More options equals more life and joy. More money would be more security. I mean, how many of us trust uh, our bank accounts more than we trust the sovereignty of God? And notice, by the way, as you heard read, notice that Jesus goes on to instruct his disciples on anxiety right after this passage because the two are connected. More money, we sometimes think, would be more travel, more exotic experiences that would give us a life worth living. More money would be more independence. More money would mean I have to work less. And that's a lie because it seems to indicate uh, that work is kind of a necessary evil. Get an early retirement, buy a house in Florida, live on the beach, play golf, and spend your days marking off your bucket list. That, That, as a goal, as a central goal, is dangerously close to the man of the parable. More money equals the American dream. More money would give us moral superiority. Feel better than others. More money would solve our problems. Those are some of the lies that we're tempted to believe money will give us. So, to be clear, like I said, building bigger barns is not inherently sinful. And some of those lies that I just mentioned are not sinful in and of themselves. So, for instance, saving money, investing is not only permissible. Proverbs and the parable of the talents would indicate that it's often wise to do. Traveling is not sinful in and of itself. It's good to travel. but What makes these things sinful is when those desires become central and define what life and joy is for us. So remember what Jesus said, he said, when you lay up treasure for yourself and you're not rich towards God, that's when it becomes a problem. That's the message, by the way, that the world is trying to get you to conform to. So one saying goes, you probably have heard it before. It's not having money that's the problem. It's when money has you. And you know it has you when you find yourself treasuring those things more than you treasure God. So God is most interested, as I mentioned before, in the attitude of your heart. And again, it's not just what you say. It's not just what you think It's what you actually love, as is represented by the way you handle your money. So you may think that life is found in God, but you may actually love something more than him, as is evidenced by the way you handle your money. And so what hints? We've we've identified some things of some lies we might believe, but what are some hints that may indicate to us that we are actively believing those lies, that we really have found uh, more, we're really thinking more about ourselves than we are being rich towards God? Well, here's a few questions that might indicate to us that these lies are actually constantly being believed. So first, one question would be, do you have anxiety over the flow of the stock market or the state of your bank account? We'll get to this more in a moment, but do you find yourself being stingy, unthankful, or absent when it comes to generously giving your money to the work of the kingdom or the work of the poor or those that are poor? Do you wait for your payday and think about all the ways that you're going to spend that money when you get it? Just think about that day. My payday's on the 15th. Excess money comes in. Do you immediately think about all the ways that you want to spend that way? Do you find yourself consistently, I want to put an emphasis there, it's not wrong to be dreaming about traveling, but do you find yourself consistently dreaming about all the places that you want to travel, but rarely dreaming about the ways that you want the gospel to travel? Do you have a large accumulation of luxurious debt from having bought things most of which you don't need? Similarly, do you find yourself on that so-called hedonic treadmill where you keep buying things over and over and over again to try to make your soul complete or feel happy and they do for a week or two and then you buy something else? Or are you neglecting basic responsibilities in your life in order to make money, make more money so that you can then move on to something else? Are you neglecting responsibilities? in favor of trying to work more to earn more money. These are just some of the ways that we can evaluate if our hearts are treasuring ourselves and what money can get us more than we treasure God. And so take care, beloved, Jesus says. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. That verse you knew I was going to read today, 1 Timothy 6, 10, so helpful. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. We might know that first sentence. Listen to the second one. It is through this craving That some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can think about Demas that did this. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Go back this afternoon and read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 25. Write that down and go back and read it this afternoon and see what Lazarus, the rich man, would have to say after he dies and is able to evaluate what happened in his life and compare that to the poor man in the story. Or even if you don't want to listen to Scripture, you're not a Christian and you're just sort of thinking about things. Listen to someone that achieved fame and fortune he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer, unquote. And this is a guy, if I gave you his name, you'd know who it is. So if that's not the answer, what is? Right? What is the answer to life if it's not in what money can get us? If money can't buy life, then what is life and where can I find it? Maybe you're asking that this morning. Maybe that's one of the reasons you came to church this morning. And for you, Christian, how, would you, how should you use your money? How, how can we conform to the world to come and not this world with our money? Well, all I've said so far is the way we handle our money reveals what we treasure. The attitudes of our heart is what is most important. And so don't treasure what money can get you. Second point, treasure God. Treasure God. Look again at the end of the parable there in verse 21. Treasure God. Look at verse 21. Jesus says life is not found in the abundance of one's possessions. It's not found in stuff. It's not found in laying up treasure for yourself. It's being rich towards God. That's what Jesus says. Jesus goes on to teach the disciples in verse 22 of Luke 12 to not be anxious about your life. There's that word again. Verse 23 he even explains it more. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he concludes in verse 31 down to 33. Seek the kingdom. Being rich towards God. Seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's, don't you love this word? Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's so happy to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And then Jesus goes on to tell them to be prepared. In the passage right after that. If you look down there uh, at the end of the passage of Luke chapter 12. You'll notice at the end there. Verse 35 to the end of the chapter. He then is telling them to be prepared for the return of Christ. For the coming of the new heavens and new earth. Fully restored kingdom new of heaven here on earth. And so do you see what Jesus is saying in all of this? Jesus is not telling us that our desires are too strong. He's telling us that they're too weak. He's telling us that we should desire wealth. How about that? You didn't expect me to say that, did you? You should desire wealth. You should desire riches. We're just looking for them in all the wrong places. The world is trying to teach us to find wealth here. And Jesus is trying to tell us to find wealth there. Ultimate wealth there in him, in his heavenly kingdom. He's warning us of earthly treasures because they because they do not orient our hearts towards that which is most valuable. He wants us to be rich in God, rich in God. He wants us to treasure him above all things. Matthew six nineteen to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. OK, God, what should I do? Where should I? Where should I storm up? But lay up for yourselves treasures in what? Heaven. Verse 24, he goes on in that same passage. You cannot serve both God and money. Serve God, treasure God. He is the treasure that never fades, never spoils, never fails. All the other ones do. He never does. Love him with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength and with your money. Don't love yourself and your desires. Love him and his desires for you. He is the one that you were made for. And he's good. He's good. So let me give you a little illustration of this. A little personal illustration. I'm not a huge fan. um, Even though I do it from time to time. I'm not a huge fan of putting Nathan in sermons. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I kind of wrestled with this. And I thought it would be helpful to you. Because this story about money and these things, kinds of things is very much part of my testimony. And since a lot of you are new and we don't know each other that well, I thought maybe it would be helpful for you to know a little bit something about me. So I hopefully this testimony will illustrate the point that Jesus is making to be rich towards God and the emptiness of money. So when I was dating and eventually married my wife, Andy, we both loved Jesus. Uh, we we're really living, though, that kind of Americanized version of Christianity. We're living in suburban Atlanta uh, where plenty of churches can be found and comfortable Christianity can be found, the gospel. I think we believed the gospel. We were regenerate. But the gospel that we believed in was kind of safe and easy and comfortable. And so both Andy and I had good jobs. Uh, we traveled a lot. We made good money. Uh, we were always sort of going around the country doing a lot of things on other people's dimes. It was on, awesome. I was in sales for about five years. I was a sales manager, traveling all over the place. Uh, My wife and I, after we were married, we bought a beautiful house, four-bedroom house, 2,500 square foot, cul-de-sac. It was nice, no picket fences. We had a wooden fence, but it was in the back, not picket fence. Uh, I bought Andy a newish Toyota Camry. It wasn't new. It was new-ish. It was still new. I mean, it was, yeah, anyway. So... And none of these things are inherently wrong. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there we were. We were living the American dream. We came home to our, we, we, we went to church every Sunday, but we rarely reflected on anything that was happening at church. I, th- I think on a Sunday like this, I would have been talking about what happened to a football game yesterday. That's probably what I've been doing after church years ago. We would come home after church. And as I mentioned, we're traveling all over the place. Uh, sometimes Andy would travel to one city and I'd go meet her there because, again, it was, it was uh, cheap. Uh, and we did that for the first couple years of our marriage when it all got boring. And more importantly, something else got fun. Andy had uh, started discipling some dis- uh, some high school girls. She was meeting with him week after week. I started thinking a little bit more carefully about my faith. Uh, reading, I started reading the Bible a bit more carefully. I began to teach even differently. I was teaching a class in the church. Uh, I got involved in t- discipling some high school guys. I was sharing my work I was sharing my faith at my job regularly. And it was in that era of time when me and another guy, this was just before we got married, but it was in that kind of season, all that season, uh, when another guy, me and another guy, went to a conference right outside of Memphis, Tennessee in the year 2000. It was called One Day. The conference was great, but there was this sermon that was delivered by a pastor I'd never heard of. And I'll never forget it because when he went up into the pulpit, everybody that spoke before him was so cool. You know, they had cool jeans and cool shirts and they all kind of you know had cool stories and this guy came up and he was not cool right his his hair was all over the place he had huge glasses he was old you know like my age and and I I started thinking immediately who's this guy what does he have to give us and guys there are not many sermons that I can look back on and go something happened but this is one sermon I got two or three sermons in my life and this is one of them where I was changed by the end of this sermon. And as he began to preach, um, I, let me, by the way, let me encourage you to go and listen. Couple, I'm not, I realize I've given you a couple bits of homework this afternoon, but go listen to this sermon. You can watch this sermon. You'll immediately agree with my assessment of him. Uh, it's called Don't Waste Your Life. Just Google Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, John Piper, that's the guy. Sermon. <laughs> I love my brother. Go watch that sermon. I was sitting in the crowd when he delivered that sermon. Uh, He told the story of a couple ladies at the front end of the sermon that had never married and in their 50s, and they had left to go to be medical missionaries from his church in Cameroon. So these 50-year-olds, he was telling their story, uh, they left to go be medical missionaries in Cameroon, and one day that they were driving their car, the brakes gave out, and they flew over the side of a mountain and died instantly. And he asked the question to his congregation as he was shepherding them through that grief. Is that a tragedy? And he quickly said, no, it's not a tragedy. He was sharing all of this with us there at the conference. And he goes on to say, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he read a story from Reader's Digest about a couple that retired, bought a boat, played softball, and were collecting shells. And he went on to say, this is a quote from the sermon, that's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I'm pleading with you with all of my heart, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. And you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I was captivated by the sermon because it didn't seem like an act. Like he, he seemed to really believe what he was saying. It was like a father talking to his son and exhorting him. He preached appropriately from Galatians six fourteen, a great verse for the sermon. Boasting only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. That was his text. And the Lord was already at work in my life. But by the end of that sermon, my life plans were decimated. I just saw the world differently. See, he had spoken into that boredom and that emptiness. And he'd also spoken into the joy. And he showed me a gospel. I'm so thankful to God for this servant. He showed me a gospel, a a Jesus that I've never really fully understood or had modeled for me. I saw gaps between my thinking and my loving. And he showed me a better life. And sometime after that, it was a few years after that, Andy and I left our high-paying, luxurious jobs. We sold our house, and we moved to a tiny little apartment in North Carolina so I could study the Bible. And folks, let me tell you, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. And I tell you that for one reason. I'm older than most of you in this room. I'm older than most of you in this room, and I've... Kind of been to that sort of mountaintop, those lives. My wife and I were able to achieve most of those. Traveled a lot, had the house, the car, everything, all those things. I achieved success in the eye of the world. I had achieved that American dream of travel and comfort and safety. And it was all empty. It didn't deliver. And I don't tell you all of that. Listen, don't miss this. Don't walk out of here saying that I need to go and quit my job and go off to seminary and not make money. I'm not telling you to do that. That's not why I share that story with you. I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this so that you would see that life is found in Christ. That's why I share that with you. There really is truth to this. And I've been able to taste it and see it. I've had both. I've had both. And this is so much better. I have so I have, I have plenty of possessions. Trust me. I have plenty of possessions. I have, uh, I have something in my storage unit and my basement of my apartment building all right but listen i have less materially in the eyes of the world but i have so much more in christ my heart is so much more content life is found in christ listen to this wonderful passage so appropriate for us to be thinking about this second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich Yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that great? That's what he wants for us. He that we might become rich, wealthy. See, God. Sent his son, his son was in wealth and he became poor to live the life that we did not live, to purchase us Back from the dead. On the cross. And by His payment, our sins are taken away. Washed away forever. Even those bad choices that we made financially. Washed them all away in Christ Jesus. Rose on the third day. And He did this to redeem us. To buy us. He was interested in purchasing. And He bought us out of that with the wealth of His blood. And that is why you should hear this admonition to be warned of riches in the world and to find life in Christ. Life, Jesus says, is not found in the abundance of possessions. So you should then ask the question, where is it found? Well, Nathan, you just told me it was found in Christ. But what does Jesus say? Where is life found? John seventeen three. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this is the one. This is life, or as he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I'm here to tell you guys, that's true. That's real. That is true. Eternal life. If someone were to ask you the question, what's eternal life all about? Point him to John 17:3 and say the life of the Christian is about knowing God and knowing the son of whom he sent. That's what life is. Do not treasure what wealth, ultimately treasure what wealth can give you. Treasure Christ. Treasure the Father that sent the Son. Do not be conformed to this world's agenda of you. Be conformed to the heavenly world's agenda of Christ. Do that and you will have wealth that will never spoil or fade. Folks, you should know that there are no U-holes attached to hearses. But there is a home a good home that the Son of God has promised to those of us who believe. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be a pretty nice house. And he says he has gone to prepare a place for us to be in it forever. So how do we do this? What does this look like? How can we cultivate wealth towards God and not conform to the world's agenda of wealth towards ourselves? Consumption, these kinds of things. How do we do this? And how is it we avoid legalism on the one hand and licentiousness on the other? Well, first off, we should note that the word of the Lord says that we should not only look to our own interests, Philippians 2.4. In other words, it's not wrong to look to your own interests. It's just that we should not look only to our own interests. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. And just after that, in verse 18, Paul says that a worker is worthy of his wages. And so, listen, working hard, earning a good wage, providing food, clothing, shelter for you or your family, that's good. That's part of being rich towards God. But secondly, Proverbs tells us time and again about the wisdom of planning ahead. You just read through Proverbs. This will come up regularly. And so saving money, even investing money, is considered wise. And how about this one? This verse blew me away. Go back and read Proverbs 2120, where it says that it is, quote, wise to have precious treasure and oil in a dwelling. Didn't expect to read that in the Bible. So from that, we can see that owning a home, having a nice thing, sometimes considered wise. And so buying yourself a new pair of tennis shoes or A new pair of jeans is not inherently sinful. Remember, it's not wealth and possessions that God condemns. It's when your heart treasures those things as the definition of life more than God. That's when it becomes a problem. Jesus does not say that you that you don't have possessions or you can't have possessions. He warns us of thinking that the abundance of possessions is life is that is the definition. That's what he's warning us to. He doesn't even say that a rich man can't get to heaven. He just says that it's hard. It's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. And so if I run into you at the outlet mall, don't judge me. All right? And I'm not going to judge you. Right? <laughs> if I see, you know, if I see Travis rolling up in a new car next week, I'm not going to judge Travis. You shouldn't judge Travis, right? Start thinking about all the things. Oh man, I guess he does I guess he loves the world. He's conforming. Travis was so. You know? Don't do that. Don't do that. But if these kinds of things are happening regularly and you are giving little time or begrudgingly giving even of your money to the work of God's kingdom, then you stand in danger of Jesus' warnings. Take a look over at 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. We're going to end here. It's going to be to your right. Move to the right. It's always helpful to know when you're thinking about uh, the passages in Scripture, uh, especially Paul's epistles, they start with the longest one and they go short. To the shores. That's why Titus is the last one. So Timothy's sort of towards the back. So 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. Here we're going to get some specific. I think definitions. Or specific illustrations. Of how we can be rich towards God with our money. Take a look at verse 17 to 19. I'm going to read there. Here we've got some more practical. You're going to want them to be more practical. than Than Paul's being. But I think it's wise that God kind of stay more broad. Um. These are some more practical ways. How is it we, the, we're answering the question, how can we not conform to the world and conform to the world for the come with our money? First Timothy six seventeen says this. As for the rich in the present age, by the way, that's basically everybody in this room. You should know that. I know you college students sitting there going, oh, you don't understand. But no, listen, trust me. All right. Uh, in the history of the world, you have more money than most every person in the history of the world, literally. So, so this passage is for all of us. Probably, I don't know all y'all situation, but my assumption is that as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Here it is again This sound familiar, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be here. It is again rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See so hear it again? He's trying to define life, truly life. I see four things there that Paul calls us to in order to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth where rust and moth destroy. I see four things he said. Four ways we can be rich towards God. One, don't be haughty. Verse 17. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud about your wealth. If you think that because of your wealth you are better than someone else, then you are opposed to what it means to truly live in Christ. Don't set your hopes, he says there, on the uncertainty of riches. Like guys, how many sort of riches to rag story do you need to hear to not believe, to not believe that riches makes you happy? Whatever your fa- financial situation is today, good or bad, do not set your hopes on it. Good or bad, don't set your hopes on it. If you don't have money, don't set your hopes on getting it. If you do have money, don't set your hopes on it. It is, Paul says, uncertain. So don't be arrogant about it. Remember the perspective of Jesus in the parable. You might die. And what then? The stock market may crash. You may get hurt. Don't build your life on shifting sand. Riches are uncertain. Don't build your hope on them. Second, set your hope in God. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Set your hope on God. That's what Paul says there in the passage. Christ Jesus is the rock that we can stand on in the midst of storms because he never spoils or fades. His kingdom never fails. His love is steadfast and faithful. Kings and nations rise and fall, And so does our bank accounts. But he never does. He never does. He is faithful as the rising sun. Set your hope in him by rehearsing the faithfulness of God every day for yourself. When you sit down at dinner every week or every night, just sit down and say, what's one thing I can be thankful to God for today? You will trust him and learn that and rehearse yourself for that. And did you notice there in verse 17, the language of Paul set your hope in God? Look at that. Who richly provides us with a few things to enjoy. Y'all don't see that out there. Those of you who have Bible, they're the ones that laughing because they can see it right there. That's not what it says, right? It says, verse 17, set your hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is after our joy. He is not a stingy God. He doesn't want us, as I said last week, sort of sitting and just waiting to die so we can go be in heaven, don't spend any money, don't even, you know... No, he's after our joy. He not only provides some things to enjoy, he provides, it says, everything for us to enjoy, and he does it richly. Hope, friends, in God. Hope in God. Third, verse 18. Do good, be rich in good works. Do good, be rich in good works. So a lot of people talk about being good and doing good and being a good person, but did you notice they hardly ever define what that is? Study the life of Christ, and you'll see what's good. He's the definition of the good. Go and do the same towards others because of God's love for you first. Not to to try to earn salvation, but out of love, out of responsive love to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, respond by doing good and being rich towards others. Respond to the gospel by loving God and loving your neighbor. Jesus says that's the fulfillment of the law. And so if you're always serving yourself, then you're not being rich towards God. Let it be said of you, beloved, when you die, no matter how much money you have or don't have, let it be said of you that you are rich in good works. Who cares about how much money you have if it could be said of you? Be rich in good works that you served others sacrificially. This is going to keep you away from the love of money. And finally, lastly, be generous and ready to share. Be generous and ready to share. Jesus says that it is better to what? Give than to receive. Acts 20, 35. God was incredibly generous towards us. You heard Nick pray that. We've been singing about that. Therefore, we should be generous and ready to share of our time, our talents, and our treasures towards others. And in particular, we should regularly and sacrificially give of our money. See, while it's true that the tithe is not commanded as a New Testament principle in the church, it is a wise principle. It's a good place to start. First Corinthians 16 says this, he's writing to a local church on the first day of the week, that'd be Sunday, first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper. So the first day of the week would have been when the church gathered. This is one of the reasons we take up an offering every Sunday. And so heed the counsel of Paul that says to regularly give to the work of the kingdom here at Jesus's church and do it cheerfully. And I want to make a case, by the way, that the first and primary place that you as a Christian should be giving of your wealth is to the local church. I'll give you one reason for that. It's a really simple one. Jesus says the thing that he's using to build his fame on the earth is the church. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. It's the one thing that you can be sure of will not fail. Give your money there. Start there. Focus there. Do other things. My family and I, we do other things, but we focus here. And these are the ones we committed to, right? So members of Restoration Church, this is what you promised when you became a member. We promised with each other that we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of this ministry. The expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. And we said that because that's what the Bible teaches. It's good for us. We're, we should know, some of you should know, we're a little behind in our giving this year so far. But listen, the, the baskets have already been taken up. All right? We're not going to do another offering after the sermon. All right? but, I, but, but, but you should evaluate. You should evaluate that promise that you said. that You're going to contribute regularly and cheerfully to the support of the work of the church, the relief of the poor. And it shouldn't only stop here. You should be doing other things. So evaluate that and remember that giving is not some kind of God tax, right? This is God's good plan for you to sanctify you. How does God sanctify? I want some sanctification, God, grow me, mature me. OK, here's one way. Give your money away. Well, I don't want to do that. Right. Right. So now that's how you get sanctified. Right. You do stuff you don't want to do. We've been fasting this week. Right. How many people like we like me and got grumpy? I want food. Give me food. Right. But know that God is sanctifying me. I was going to tell a story. I'm stopping. Uh, Yeah, it's good when we can't do things or even when we want to do things and we do them as a way of sacrifice to God. And those are the ways that God grows up us up in that good, acceptable and perfect will of God, which is our sanctification. Giving is so much more fun than receiving. Those of you that have kids. Know this. If you want kids and the Lord blesses you with children someday, you'll know this. On Christmas morning, it's so much more fun. You thought it's fun to open up your own gifts; So much more fun giving stuff to my kids and watching them open them up. Now, I realize this is really quick. I realize that a lot of you are in debt. That's another way in which we kind of conform to the world in some ways. And there's all kinds of theories about, you know, debt is good, debt, bad, good debt, bad debt, all those kind of things. Uh, we know scripture is very clear. Doesn't it, it just speaks poorly against it? Does not scripture does not like debt, and one reason it does is because it limits your ability to give, so that you can joyfully participate in being generous. And so, do all that is possible to avoid more debt and to pay off what debt you have. And if you have any questions about these things, go talk to our lay elders. Uh, and I say that because i don 't want to talk to you, but I was thinking about this week about how all of them actually thought a lot about this stuff. So Chris Ambridge and Kyle Mays and Nick Teku, these guys have thought a lot about money, um, and so there would be good resources for you to talk to about these kinds of things, not just debt but anything in relation to your uh, money, about grounding it and doing it but don 't get caught up guys on these particulars. so many of you in your minds are running towards specific things don 't get too caught up on the specifics. Get caught up in Christ and His gospel. Do not conform to the world by treasuring what wealth can do for you. Treasure God and enjoy Him forever by building your treasure in heaven. Enjoying the life, enjoying the life that you have now in Christ Jesus. This good, perfect gift, and acceptable gift that is Christ Jesus. Love Him, give to Him, live for Him, and live sacrificially for others. Conform to the world to come, and you will know what true life is. Let's ask for help. Father, we thank you that you have entrusted so many of us to riches, earthly riches. Thank you, God. Thank you that we are not like those that have to beg for food. Some of us, that may be the case that are here in this room, and I pray, if that's them, God, that you would lead them to places where they could provide for themselves. And may we be a help towards them in that, in that way. But for the rest of us that do not have to worry about our next paycheck or our next meal, oh God, we pray, would you grant that we would be a people that would use our wealth to display the infinite value of Christ. Help us to have wisdom as to what that looks like. May you be pleased in the ways in which we handle our money because it reveals that you're at work in our lives. God, I want to thank you for the throngs of ways that this church does that already. Thank you, God, for the ways that they do give and are giving. And God, fan the flame all the more that you might be pleased to be made much of with our money. We love you and thank you for the wealth of Christ. May we be rich in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.